Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Todd Glass kept a very important secret until he was well into his 40s. Sarah Silverman was out back. Uh, I was getting into the ambulance, and I remember this. I'm having a heart attack. I know I'm having a heart attack. I was just told, Todd, you're having a heart attack from the paramedic. And I yelled out to her. I'm like, call Andrea, which was code for Chris. And I really remembered that moment. I used the word a lot, pathetic. I thought, this is pathetic. I'm having a heart attack, and I'm still trying to cover here. Really? We'll talk about why. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll sit down and talk with Todd Glass. He's been a comic for 30 years, but he's only been out of the closet for four. No one really knows what it means. You just hear it. Oh, in the closet. But you don't know the plate spinning that goes on. Who knows? Who doesn't know? Uh, Oh, I know that they know because I was told they know, but I'm too uncomfortable to tell them, hey, I know you know. Todd has a book about his experiences. It's called The Todd Glass Situation. Then later I'll talk to somebody you should definitely remember if you were either a child or a parent after about 1975. Raffi. You know Raffi. The baby beluga guy. Raffi is one of the most legendary names in children's music. You know, songs like Down by the Bay and Baby Beluga, but it wasn't always that way. I tried uh, to become someone like a James Taylor It just wasn't happening for me as a folk singer, and I was ready to give it up and become a carpenter. Then he made a kid's album with his wife, who was a kindergarten teacher. And the rest is history. Plus, the writer Ariel Schrag tells you about why she wants to work a little bit of magic into her writing about everyday stuff. Then, I'll tell you about the album that Van Morrison recorded out of pure spite. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. After 30 years of stand-up comedy, Todd Glass can still be a little bit enigmatic. Sometimes he seems like a Philly tough guy, like somebody who'd be friends with Rocky or something. Then he gets animated, kind of excited, like a baby animal. Then he turns deadly sincere. Then he does something completely silly and disarming. Here he is in a clip from his last special, Todd Glass Talks About Stuff. When you're around the little puppy, six weeks old, that's who you are when nobody else is around. There's truth to this. Not when other people are around. Yeah, you might be nice to a puppy when other people are around. You see a six-week-old golden retriever puppy. Yeah, if other people are around, you might go, oh, look how cute you are. But who you are and the affection you have in you, it's when no one else is around and you're holding a six-week-old puppy. Because, you know, you're like, you're so cute. You want to bite it and mush it and love it and squeeze it. And, oh, so you ever see it? You want to bite it and suck on its face. Yes. Because it's so cute. Dogs are good people. That's who you are. You love. You ever see? If I go into the living room in the middle of the night, my dog's sleeping. First, I look at the dining room table set nicely that I set the night before. And then if I see my dog laying on the sofa with its head on the pillow, oh, you're getting bit. I just suck on his face. I suck on his face. And when I say suck on his face, I know people get confused. What do you mean? Yes, suck on his face. Because a dog is good and a dog is pure and it's not judgmental. And I want to suck some of that goodness out into me. 
Todd's book is called The Todd Glass Situation. It's about his 30-year stand-up career, his struggle with learning disabilities in school, and why he chose to come out as gay when he was 47 years old. Todd, it's great to have you on Bullseye. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I actually forgot about that bit. <laughs> it's a good bit. It's a rock-solid bit. I like... The, here's the thing. Here's the reason I wanted to use that clip in the in the introduction is because... I think you could go out on stage and do a set of, like, East Coast club comedy if you wanted to. Like, uh, where you're saying, this is, hey, this is like this. Hey, this is like this. Hey, this is like this. And you have great material in that vein. But you also are never afraid to go on stage and do something just really silly. Well, you know, when George Carlin had died, I was a fan before, but when he died, I really started, you know, looking over his work. And it really did answer a question. I, I remember thinking, I got to decide what I'm doing. Like, am I political? I'm not political. I knew that. But I, I, I like social issues. I started to maybe tackle some social issues. But then I'm really silly. And I remember just thinking, and I knew I was right. You got to do one or the other. You, I got to decide, Todd. You've been doing comedy a long time. What is it that you're doing? And then I watched George Carr, and I was like, oh, thank God. You do whatever you want. You can be silly. You can be social. And he would bounce back and forth. And that uh, that was the biggest. I remember just going, oh, I don't have that mountain ahead of me of thinking what I have to do. So I just do you know, whatever I'm in the mood to do. But did you – you've been doing stand-up for such a long time. Um, did you always trust yourself to be that ridiculous? No, it took a it took a while. I still the podcast and doing radio has helped my stand up in a way because when you don't first of all the audience is the best thing in the world. The only thing that could be bad about the audience and you'll understand what I'm saying is only thing you let it do. It's like if I always say if you were painting in front of an audience and uh, it's nice when they like what you're painting and you hear signs of oh, but if you hear them go ugh, you can't change what you're painting. So, yeah, the audience is great. That's why I do this. There's nothing better than an audience. But when you're looking at them and you'll stop a bit because you think, ah, they've, you've done it too long, and you're, you're stopping it. You're, you're trimming it off. You know? You're like, ah, I better cut this short. They're not into it. You won't do that with the podcast audience because you don't see them. I think that's why growing up listening to certain, you know, Howard Stern especially, I would literally be in my car punching the floor, punching my friend, punching the car door because he wasn't – Looking at an audience, if it was making them in the studio laugh, they did it. And that's what I learned in my podcast, that if it's making us laugh, we do it. And it's taught me to do that in front of a live audience. Just because there's maybe 20 people staring at you and they're not getting it, just just do it. If it's making you laugh, just do it. Let's talk about your experiences in school because they seem like they shake you so much. I talk about this from time to time publicly, but I was socially promoted out of middle school. I didn't graduate from middle school. Uh, from what you wrote in your book, you didn't graduate from practically any grade you went to. You know, when I, I mean, the, you went to all of the grades eventually. I did go to all the grades. That's a good. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> and by the way, it's never woe is me. Like right. I, I understand. I I had a good. I do. I still do have a good life. So it's not woe is me at all. It's not woe is me. But I had a hard time in school, and I remember thinking. Every, so does everybody. I remember the clear thought, Todd, everybody's like you. Nobody can concentrate. Uh, they just try harder. And I would try harder. I would go, just come on, just concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Well, you can't concentrate with that rattling in your head. And 
my teachers never made me feel stupid. I lucked out and had a great bunch of teachers. So many of my teachers, like even though I was flunking out of school, I remember them thinking, like, what's wrong? In 12th grade, they started to know a lot about dyslexia. By that time, I was so exhausted that I had found stand-up comedy, and my parents let me uh, – That I remember my guidance counselor said, usually kids that have dyslexia will excel in alternative, whether it's sports or whether it's music or whether it's – in his case, he wants to do stand-up comedy and sort of gave his blessing, let him do it. Let him do it, and um, I'm glad I did. But, yeah, every year I didn't do well. In second grade, I went into a, the resource room. Then in third grade, my parents moved. I said, you know, when they moved, I think it threw everybody off. So they're like, I think he's in fourth grade. And then in fourth grade, I went into a special school and then back into regular school until in 10th grade, I really do remember thinking I finally had friends in high school I really liked, and I thought, you're not going to graduate, but just go to school, and maybe you'll retain some of this stuff. So thank God, you know, I learned, uh, you know, some stuff and I retained some of it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian Todd Glass. He has a book out about his life. It's called The Todd Glass Situation. It's available now in paperback. Did you have to come up with um, a certain amount of a sort of combination of, of like a workaround and a, and a facade to make it through to just to show enough that you were that you were, like, getting it? Oh, I actually, this is very author-esque of me, what I'm about to say. I talk about it in the book. I would literally learn to make a face because my face that I made when I really was reacting properly was scrunched up and confused, which is how I always felt. And then they would explain and explain it and explain it. And then the more my face didn't look like the face of a kid that gets it, they would keep explaining it. So finally I learned to make the face of, oh, Oh, yeah. And then they would figure, okay, he understands now. But I didn't. I didn't understand. You you actually have a bit on your most recent special uh, about sort of sort of tangentially related to this. So you talk you talk a lot you talk a fair amount in the special about your dyslexia and how it affects your life. And in this clip, uh you're explaining a a workaround you worked up for words you couldn't say. I have a hard time saying certain words because I, you know, because the dyslexia, no big deal. I just flip things in my head sometimes. So I don't say the words. And uh, one of the words I have a hard time saying is, uh, I can say it now because I'll slow down, is domesticated. So I used to say domesticated. You know, I say, hey, domesticated. And people would be like, really? How old are you? So, so I tried, I stopped saying it. Then a friend of mine, she goes, oh, you could say it. She goes, just slow down. She goes, just say domest. I say domest. She goes, duh, demes, duh. This is true, by the way. I go, demes, duh. She goes, now just say cated. I go, demes, duh, cated. She goes, there you go. <laughs> but I still can't say it at parties. Hey, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, the prairie dog was not the first dog to be demes, duh, cated. <laughs> People will be like, that guy's smart. A lot of big words, really savers, every word. <laughs> you know, I realized that it's absolutely flipping of the words. There's no doubt in my mind what dyslexia is. When I go to say the words wrong on stage, because now I need to say them wrong. I go, you know, sometimes I'll say, and I'll go domesticated or syphilities. I have to say, but if I go to say it, I'll go facilities because I go to say it wrong and I flip it and say it right. 
So because I say the civilities, domesticated, I can yeah. Sometimes now it flips back and forth, but the civilities. I'm trying to say facilities. When you were like um, 12 years old or whatever, um, did you know anybody who was gay? <gasps> what? Or, <laughs> or and I mean not just personally, but like even out in the world, like know of specifically? Well, I feel like because of my parents, maybe specifically my mom, I, I sort of felt like I got to grow up, at least with my surroundings, almost like it is today. Because my parents had gay friends. They had all types of friends. And so I did. But uh, they weren't anybody I could relate to. They weren't anybody I could feel like I could relate to. You know, my parents had a friend, uh, a very close friend that was, and there was he was a secret. So I did know some people, but nobody that I could relate with. Did you know that he was gay? Uh, later I did. And I really, that brought me a lot of calm because uh, Jim was my mom's close friend, and uh, I thought he was really cool. You know, like, oh, Jim's a cool guy. Like, we all thought Jim was cool. And, uh, and then when I found that out, it made me feel good. He's just a regular guy. He wasn't overly uh, tough because I, I wasn't that. I was just like a regular guy. And he wasn't uh, very flamboyant. Uh, I'm always afraid to say this because I am not insinuating that people that are, whoever you are is who you should be. And if you are flamboyant and that's who you are, be that. Be that. I don't want to be the person that's gay that now says, even that bothers me. Nothing bothers me if someone's who they are. Someone might say, you know, uh, how does someone get to be that flamboyant? I guess you can answer a question with a question. In the straight world, you have yours. You have the guys that are overly, uh, not just regular. I'm not talking about got a lot of testosterone. Sure, I mean, there's the rock, right? You got a, a parody of your, a parody of uh of a lot of testosterone, not a, not genuinely a lot, but a parody of it. How's that person become that? I don't know. But for me, that's what I'm saying. I didn't relate to that. So Jim was just regular guy. Uh, so that calmed me a little bit. When I think of you putting together these two complicated shows for the world, I mean like logistically complicated, not particularly duplicitous, which are, A, you had to show the world that you're moving through learning comfortably despite the fact that you're really severely dyslexic and actually just not following what's happening in the classroom, um, uh, the academic stuff. And, B, that you're gay and you're, and you're in the closet. It's so, it contrasts so much to me with what I know about you personally, which is that you're one of the most sincere and direct people that I've ever known and I just think it must be it must have been so difficult to have those two things going at the same time again I I don't know why I always feel the need to preface this like I had a a, you know a fun life you know I had like like my my brothers we laughed we had a good time but when my anger comes out it really is for kids going through it today Um, it does it's hard you know it's hard enough going through sexuality when you can express it but you know that bottled up feeling when you're attracted to somebody and you can't share it with anyone like you think why didn't I explode you know what was I I I didn't know like you know I I had feelings towards guys and I was like what I had nothing there's nowhere to go finally when you have one friend you're like you know that's all you talk about because you made that one friend and then you go and you spend hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours sitting at a diner till the sun comes out because you found one person 
that you can relate with. And like you, you know, it's a guy like you, just a regular guy. I was about, I forget what age it was when I met somebody like that, but it's probably about 21 maybe. That's why I always say to anybody today that's teaching children that it's wrong or, you know, like that, you know, the church that says, you know, it's you can pray, pray it away. I always feel like I should say to everybody that believes, that has beliefs like that, you should have to write a essay on what if you're wrong. Then, then write, once you write the essay, go back to doing what you want to do. But understand that if you're wrong, just underline if a hundred times after this, write an essay on what would be the, what would have, what happens? Who are you causing pain? If you're wrong and your beliefs are wrong, you should have to write a, a, a five page essay on the damage that it would cause all these people because the test results are in. It's not wrong. And it caused a lot of pain for, and it still does for a lot of kids. And what's worse about it is when it's perpetuated by adults. When it's perpetuated by adults, that's what's so just mind-boggling to me that there's still a lot of adults perpetuating this, 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 you know, kids that are just sad and you're causing it and you're wrong and it's not open for debate. It's not open for debate. You're wrong, you know? I thought about when I was reading your book how when I was... 14 or whatever and like 13 had middle school girlfriends you know and how like awkward and painful and difficult it was despite the fact that it went fine when things like when do you call someone or whatever and getting it wrong sometimes and then thinking just like what if I had to do that but privately by myself inside of myself and I couldn't ever and none of it would ever succeed. Yeah, undercover. Yeah. You know, it's like going through all the emotions and then you're under you're doing it undercover. And yeah, you know what? You do it. You do it. And some people could say, "Well, everybody has problems. Life's problems." Yeah, but they're not perpetuated by like I said, by the misbelief that 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 is a bad thing or that is not normal. That's the difference. You know, that's a big difference. You know, you're going to have problems. Life gives you problems, but they don't have to be perpetuated by full-grown adults. That's pathetic. You know, something that you write about in the book is the way that you had to build up these structures to manage your dyslexia. You had to build up these increasingly complex structures to manage staying in the closet when, you know, eventually you had a... I prefer a, a, a busting out of the shed, by the way. That's okay. Mine. <laughs> Sounds you. a little tougher. I'll try and be sensitive to that. <laughs> um, uh, when you had, you know, a, a live-in uh, partner for a long time, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, you and he had to go through, like, oh, who knows, who doesn't know, who can know, who can't know, you know, who thinks we're just adults who are roommates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a part of me that wonders if part of why you came out so late in life was because those kind of structures were so important to you and so well-built by the time you were 23, you know, 25 years ago. It was scary to face the prospect of breaking them down and, you know, starting over. I was trying to, this leads directly to what you just asked me, uh, and still I'm trying to sell a show called The Todd Glass Situation. Uh, which is about a lot of shows have been about somebody in uh, out of the closet. This is a show about someone that's been in the closet. And when I was pitching it, I said, you know, we all hear the term out of the closet, uh, in the closet, but no one really knows what it means. You just hear it. Oh, in the closet. But you don't know the plate spinning that goes on. Who knows? Who doesn't know? Uh, oh, I know that they know. 
because I was told they know, but I'm too uncomfortable to tell them, hey, I know you know. (laughs) So it's so much plate spinning, and you get comfortable with it. You think, oh, we're doing all right. You know, me and Chris, we're we're doing all right. We, we, We got our circle of friends that know, but it still gets exhausting. It really is exhausting, and I had a heart attack, and uh, remember when Chris, you know, uh, Sarah Silverman was out back at the Carnet Theater in Largo. The old, new, it's, it used to be Largo, now it's a Carnet Theater. And uh, I was getting into the ambulance, and I remember this. I'm having a heart attack. I know I'm having a heart attack. I was just told, Todd, you're having a heart attack from the paramedic. And I yelled out to her. I'm like, call Andrea, which was code for Chris. And I really remember that moment. I used the word a lot, pathetic. I thought, this is pathetic. I'm having a heart attack, and I'm still trying to cover here. Really? And then he came into the hospital to visit me, and he brought me a card. And I remember him just walking over to my bed, and he uh, shoved a card under my pillow. And I just was like, what am I doing? After a break, I'll finish my conversation with Todd Glass. He'll talk about why he waited until he was deep into his 40s to come out of the closet. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bulletproof Coffee, working to turn your morning coffee into a favorite breakfast treat. You don't need a fancy coffee maker, just a unique recipe. Imagine a cross between a latte and a breakfast smoothie designed to keep you full and energized for hours. Visit Bulletproof.com and you'll get $10 off your first order when you enter the coupon code NPR. It's a combination of coffee and butter. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian Todd Glass. It seems like when you became a comic, you found a sort of structured, comfortable environment with direct responses that really spoke to you, like, right away. Yeah. Look at you. You did read the book. The, when I don't have to wait 30 years to go, oh, I really... You know, that stand-up comedy in hindsight, no, no. And when I found it, it was like a mirage that was actually there, if that's if that's if I said it right. And it, I loved comedians. I loved who they were. I still do. I still do. I love, and I talk about this in the book, if being a stand-up comedian, you're part of a fraternity, I think it's the best fraternity that I could ever be a part of. They Most comedians, most, offer me everything I need, and I knew it from the day I started meeting even open mic night comedians. They offer me everything I need, and that's silliness, depth, warmth, genuineness, kindness, empathy, compassion, and then acting like a seventh grader <laughs> as a full-grown adult. And they offered me everything, and they still do. But you were still not comfortable being publicly gay. No. And, you know. Because comedians are weirdos. There's a it's a very it's a it's a broad and accepting community in many ways. There were still a lot of jokes, though. Yeah. There were a lot of jokes, even from forget about the egregious, like what I say, F this or F that. You know, that's why today I'm very careful of the jokes that I do. I always want my comedy to stand the test of time. And this is something I'm crazy passionate about. You know, we always ask, at least back then casually, we would go, how come there's only white people that come to comedy clubs, primarily white men? And I thought, oh, really? Go back and listen to the jokes. Go back and listen to the jokes. And it still goes on today. It really does. It's still a lot of comedians that are sexist and racist. By the way, there's 
none that aren't, too. I want to be very positive. I'm not saying comedy today because there's a lot of awesome, great comedians. Matter of fact, there's more new funny comedians in the last five, six years that I've seen in a long time. So comedy's in a great place. I'm saying the same type of comedy. Go back and look at, you know, I don't want to name names, but go back and look at some comedy. And if you go, well, doesn't comedy always look dated? No, no. Good comedy can stand the test of time. I was flicking through Netflix the other day, and I turned on Eddie Murphy's Raw. And Eddie Murphy is, you know, I mean, he's a guy who changed the face of comedy and, you know, be, you know, carried Saturday Night Live for whatever it was, four years when he was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously a brilliant genius-level talent. And I think I made it five minutes in. I don't I, it, and well, that, I wasn't looking to be upset. <laughs> well, you know what? You're that's that's one of them. That's one of them. And look, maybe if Eddie Murphy was to answer this, he would put his hand to his chest and go, "Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed about that." Um, but it didn't stand the test of time. It really didn't. And by the way, one of the other things that bothers me is when comedians use the greats and find one thing in their act that might have been something even I didn't agree with. You first of all. You don't know where they would have grown to if they were still alive. You know, if Richard Pryor didn't live to do the special where he said, I don't want to use the, word, the, the, uh, the N-word anymore, would have you been gone? Richard Pryor used it. So don't go to their body of work. Don't go to George. I'm, I'm saying the comedians that rationalize maybe what I perceive to be the acts. You're going to go to George Carlin on a few bits where maybe he would have even grown and told a story. How about his bits that were 500 years ahead of their time? What about George Carlin's views that were way ahead of his time? Where, where are your jokes like that? Look, people can – I'm paranoid. There's stuff that I've done that I went, oh, I outgroup. I don't do that anymore. I took it out of my act, and I want to continue to grow. I don't want to be one of these people that goes, oh, I'm done growing. It's embarrassing. Why do you want to be done growing? Why don't you want to keep growing? I want to play another bit from my guest, Todd Glass. Todd, you're very emphatic about the fact that things weren't better back then. Um, and <laughs> I'm gonna, It's going to be the death of me if I hear one more person say, go back to the way it used to be. And so, let, so let's listen. <laughs> let's listen to Todd Glass from his special Todd Glass Talks About Stuff. I saw this older guy once. He was like probably 50, actually. And... <laughs> He saw a kid with a cell phone, and he goes, yeah, when I was a kid, we didn't have cell phones. That's because they didn't have them. I don't have something they're not going to have in the future. Do I get any credit for that? Back then. It's back then. Stop with the back then. Back then, we didn't have bottled water. We drank out of the hose. Good. Go drink out of the hose. No one's stopping you. Drink hose water, bottle hose water for all your hose-drinking water friends, okay? It's just holding on. Back then, people wear suits. Yeah, you wore suits. You look good. Yeah, I wore a suit two weeks ago. It blows, okay? It's uncomfortable. <laughs> Back then, yeah. The other one that I think we, this, which is, I don't know if it was in my specials, people go, back then, we didn't have, used to have to, a guy would open up a door for a lady. And you'd be like, yeah, he also didn't want her to vote. That's a trade-up. And I know there might be some people going, Todd, are you saying nothing was better back then? Yeah, music, somebody told me. And guess what they were singing about? Changing it. The music that we loved, that people go, music was better back then, was people singing about how much they didn't like what was happening then. 
So that music perpetuated us to the future. So when people say there wasn't anything better, good back then, look, no, mo, look, I'm telling you this. If Mr. Rogers was alive today, you would think, wouldn't he want to go back then? Cleaner haircut, the sweater? No, because he was fighting. Mr. Rogers was fighting. Mr. Rogers indirectly was making fun of everything back then. You know, Mr. Rogers said, and I'm quoting him because he said if it's, ma- if it's mentionable, it's manageable. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. Now, that makes sense if you hear, oh, yeah, you have a problem. It doesn't have to be being gay. It could be you got a DUI you're embarrassed about. It could be you, you were an alcoholic. It could be you were whatever it was. And, but if you mention it, you can manage it. That's what Mr. Rogers said years ago. That was the opposite. He was saying it because that's not what people were doing. They were even, I talk about this in my act, calling underwear unmentionables. What good could have come from a group of people that were embarrassed to say underwear? And you know why they were said unmentionable? Because it touched a private part of your body. Unmentionable. What? Are you kidding me? But so, yeah, let's go forward. You know, there's still a hundred ways to go forward. So if we all agree we should go forward, we still can argue about how to go forward. But can we at least agree that we don't want to go backwards? Back to a time. Oh, and leave kids alone. Go up to kids once in a while and go, hey, you know what? Our generation did a lot of that you're dealing with. Thank you. Thank you. Don't blame them for what we caused. Because I think most problems that kids are dealing with today are because of what adults ignored a long time ago. I really do believe that. And I'm not the only adult that believes that. There's other adults that agree with me, and that calms me. We need to go back to the way it used to be. That's how we got here. You seem calm, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? With all my passion and all my and all my rage, I, I, I all I can say is I, I hope I'm right, because uh, if I'm not, I'm causing a big mess. Todd Glass, it's always it's always a pleasure to get to bask in the in your passion for life. Thanks, Todd. Thank you very much. I, uh, I feel heard and light. <laughs> <laughs> Todd Glass's book is called The Todd Glass Situation. It's available now in paperback. Artists, the people who make stuff, are always influenced by the work of others. And sometimes, something an artist sees is so good, so perfect, that they wish they'd made it themselves. This happens so often to the people we talk to that we've made a segment about it. It's called, I Wish I'd Made That. Today, you'll hear from the writer and cartoonist Ariel Schrag. Ariel wrote her first series of comics while she was still a freshman in high school. It was mostly about normal teenager stuff, sex, drugs, family issues, chemistry, homework. Then a publisher found her work and decided to put it out. She was in the 11th grade. Ariel's in her 30s now, and her latest book isn't a comic at all. It's a coming-of-age novel. It's called Adam. It's about an awkward teenage boy who spends a summer in New York City and falls in love with a girl. The problem is that the girl likes girls. So... Adam convinces her that he's a trans man. The book is really sweet and funny and frank. There's another coming-of-age novel out there that Ariel wishes she'd made herself. It was written by Bennett Madison. This book's September Girls, and so I bought it and read it and was just immediately enraptured and completely fell in love with it. Bennett's novel also offers a teenage boy as a protagonist, and they're both coming-of-age stories. But before we start running down the plot, Ariel's going to clear something up. She knows September Girls has inspired a very heated debate. After I read it, I sort of went and looked on Goodreads to see how people had responded, and there was this outrage 
calling the book sexist, misogynistic, just but like really the level of vitriol was obscene. And I was just so baffled by this. This is an amazing, brilliant book and they are wrong. Anyway, the plot, it's not dissimilar from something that Ariel might write herself. It is about a teenage boy named Sam whose mother has run away to what is referred to only as woman's land, which kind of evokes an image of the Michigan Women's Music Festival, but maybe where somewhere somewhere that women live full time. And so she's disappeared and her Sam's father is bereft and has decided to take Sam and his older brother Jeff to this beach town for the summer, possibly longer. They're not sure what's going on, but they're headed to this beach town. So they arrive at the beach town and Sam, who's, you know, relatively inexperienced, hasn't really made out with girls, suddenly realizes that the, there's this weird thing going on in the beach town, which is that there's all these really beautiful blonde girls everywhere that kind of vaguely look alike and have a sort of mysterious air to them. And they're all obsessed with him. So they're all always staring at him and flirting with him and ignoring his older brother, who's like a hot, hunky guy, which is just baffling to Sam. He doesn't understand. There's a reason for that. It's kind of a twist. Things go in a different direction than they might in a book by Ariel. And it ends up being this kind of fascinating, magic, realism mermaid tale, um, but but, uh, something that kind of takes all these sexist tropes that we find in coming-of-age tales or in Mervyn tales and flips them. She loves September Girls because it's about a normal thing, growing up and learning about your sexuality, but with some other unworldly stuff mixed in. The girls have this um, power called the knife, which is sort of their beauty and sort of their um, control over other people. It's the allure of the young teenage girl, you know, that then fades once they turn 21. The superficial view of the book would be it's this teenage boy who is obsessed with beautiful blonde girls. So then that, like, then just translates into sexist. But really, it's the book is commenting on that phenomenon and the fact that everybody worships beautiful blonde teenage girls. That's our culture. And um, and so, you know, I think that people just weren't putting enough thought in it to see past that. And so reading September Girls has inspired Ariel. Everything I've written has always been very grounded, very naturalistic. And so to read a book that actually sort of blended into fantasy was really interesting to me. And, um, and it kind of made me want to explore more things like that in my writing and the future. Ariel Schrag on the thing she wishes she'd made, Bennett Madison's 2013 novel, September Girls. Ariel Schrag's novel is called Adam. You can keep an eye on what she's up to at arielschrag.com. Throughout his nearly 40-year music career, Rafi has fought for kids. He's done it with beautiful, fun, and funny music, and he's done it as an activist. He's on the really short list of children's performers who connect directly with the youngest people with an open heart untainted by the slightest condescension. After years of working on his foundation, the Center for Child Honoring, he returned to the road and record stores with his album, Love Bug. Here's a little bit of the title track. Everybody's got a love bug Deep inside Everybody's got a love bug for their own 
everybody's got a love bug A love bug deep inside Love bug Where the hugs come from Raffi, welcome to Bullseye. It's really great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks, Jesse. So I didn't... I got to tell you, like, what what I knew about where you came from was essentially that you came from the depths of my childhood. Um, (laughs) And... Uh, I came from my mother. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was really. Um, I was really interested to read about your cultural background. Your parents are Armenian, and you were born and lived until you were about ten in Egypt before you moved to Canada. Yeah, in Cairo. What do you remember most about growing up in Cairo? Well, I remember the sand. I remember the pyramids. Um, my father was a portrait photographer of renown, even in Cairo. He had a, a portrait studio half a block long, and the family used to go to church on Sunday mornings. I remember the Armenian choir singing those soulful songs. And, you know, most Sundays, uh, he, you know, he'd take us, my father would take us in the 1948 Studebaker, two-tone green. We'd pile into it and and drive out of Cairo to Giza and the pyramids. And that was uh, amazing just to be able to do that. And um, Also, I think, you know, I was a little kid in Cairo when I was mesmerized by the environment I was in. I was learning to speak uh, Armenian and Turkish from my grandparents and also learning Arabic. Uh, so it was very, uh, just uh, a lot going on and... <laughs> Very vibrant uh, experience for a little kid. Why did your Why did your family move to Canada? I think uh, my father realized uh, that his sons and daughter, you know, the kids would have uh, a much brighter future in a country like Canada, and uh, so I really take my hat off to his very brave decision to leave uh, a very prosperous business and relocate in a new land. What did your parents think about? North American teenage culture when they brought their teenagers to North America? Well, you know, my parents, I mean, I was having the the immigrant experience every little kid has uh, in a new land. My parents were trying to keep me Armenian. I was listening to pop music, and pop music was winning. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and yet I understand why they tried to keep me Armenian. Uh, It's just sometimes they were a bit heavy-handed about it. I sang in the Armenian church choir, and that was cool. Um... But I, you know, what was exciting for me was getting my first guitar from uh, Richmond's Trading Post, a a pawn shop in Toronto. Paid $24 for it, started to teach myself uh, how to play and uh, got, you know, guitar chord books and and, and really got swept away by the music of the 60s. After a break, I'll continue my conversation with Rafi and he'll talk about how music helped him during his youth. Plus, I'll tell you about an album that Van Morrison made out of pure contempt. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, businesses don't have to spend all their time going to the post office. You can use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier comes by your place and picks it up. 
You'll even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a four-week trial and a special offer, including postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and enter Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Rafi, an entertainer and advocate whose songs include Baby Beluga, The More We Get Together, and Banana Phone. Did you think that you could become a musician? I tried uh, to become someone like a James Taylor. That's what I, you know, I was after. And my folk music career, uh, I don't know, interesting and sweet as it was, was always a struggle. And I wasn't comfortable on stage for various reasons. I didn't have my best gigs when I should have had them. And so it just wasn't happening for me as a folk singer. And I was ready to give it up and become a carpenter. <laughs> And then one day, um, as luck would have it, my uh, my then kindergarten teacher wife uh, and I decided to make an album for children. And that album was Singable Songs for the Very Young back in 1976. And it became an instant, uh, instantly popular album. And it changed my life. Early on, um, at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, were there inflection points where you had to um, where you had to make choices based on you know the kind of person and the kind of performer that you wanted to be that might have been difficult choices or choices that made you you know feel like you were going to be less famous or less financially successful or whatever well the major decision was to become a children's entertainer and to be proud of that and to be devoted to that calling. I think another aspect was knowing clearly that I was not going to do any commercial endorsements of any kind, and I haven't done one in all these years. Along the way, I understood also that um, you don't, if you respect your young audience, you don't directly advertise or market to them either. So I've never done that. And I consider it unethical uh, for anyone to market directly to young children. It's uh, exploitative of their innocence. So those are the major decisions. Tell me about—I'd like to hear more about the whys of those two rules. Tell me why you chose never to make commercial endorsements. Well, I didn't want to be selling fast foods to kids. I wanted to be making music for them. I didn't see why, you know, my popularity should be an influence in their choice of what products to buy. I didn't want that at all. And again, you know, when you consider who my inspirations were musically, you had people like, uh, well, I I mentioned Pete Seeger. He was a huge influence on me, his integrity. Uh, It was all about the music, as it should be. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm speaking with singer-songwriter Raffi. Do you remember your emotional life as a little kid? I, I, I have these little flashes, but I, I'm not somebody that remembers those kinds of things well, and I, I always regret it. Yeah, I remember very well the feeling of uh, bewilderment in my childhood. I felt that the adults uh, you know, who were around me, loved me dearly, and yet they hit me at times and they mocked me. And I, I didn't understand. I, I, I couldn't, you know, I, was, I felt really conflicted about what, what was happening. So 
you know, that might have something to do with the fact that when I was in my teens, I felt like quite a rebel. I was the class clown in various ways. I, I think I was looking to humor and to music to um, help me find some solace in in life and 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 to forget some of that uh, pain within me about, as I say, being loved but not having felt respected for the person that I was. How do you feel you are affected as an adult when you go out on a stage and interact with a uh, hundred or a uh, five hundred or a thousand kids um, and kind of have a, have a chance to see the world their way? Well, the concerts are for me, just a such a hugely loving experience. They're also work. I mean, I really have to work to remember the words, to stay in the moment, to uh, to play the guitar just right, you know, and uh, keep the groove of the song moving. But you know, I'm I'm mostly sensing a, a tremendous love in the room uh, and going with that energy, um, and. Like I say, hoping that I remember all the words to all the songs, because <laughs> you can easily lose yourself to the fun of the moment too, you know. Well, Rafi, uh, I'm surprised to hear you say that the work of a concert is um, not messing up the performance <laughs> element of it. Because <laughs> you're surprised by that. Well, I'm surprised by that because you know I'm not surprised that it's that sometimes you might have a hard time remembering the words to a song. Um, you know, I've performed and forgotten what I was supposed to say. It's hard. Uh, but I I would think that the first thing that you would say would be the big challenge of performing as Rafi is that you're performing for a bunch of, you know, three and four and five and six and seven-year-olds who are, you know, who are all going their own directions. <laughs> like that the big challenge well, would be in, in, actually, the same way that, in the same way that if I talk to a stand-up comic – you know, a, mm-hmm. a big part of what their work is is getting up on stage and just getting everyone pointed the same direction. Here, here's the thing. In concert, for me, what I know is that families come to enjoy the concert together. The children are not there, you know, by themselves. So that's a grounding uh, element to the show. And children and their parents come wanting to hear their favorite Rafi songs, and I know that. And while I can't sing every single one of their favorites, I certainly sing enough that they feel right away, right from the start, connected to the music that they love. And I think it's that beautiful connection at the beginning of the show that allows uh, for the rest of the show to go well and for me to take some chances here and there uh, with a song that they might not know. And... uh, the, the the songs that they do know becomes the, become the toys that we are there to play with, and it's a, a lovely experience. Right now I'm imagining you opening with Baby Beluga and like two-thirds of the way through you hit him with smoke on the water. <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> so what, tell me, tell me, Rafi, what, what, what's, the song that you, what's the song that you can open a show with and, and you got all, all those kids and parents on your side? Well, that's pretty easy. It's uh, The More We Get Together. It's <laughs> the first song that I ever recorded on the very first children's album. 
So it's a lovely little uh, waltz to, to sing, and everybody knows the words, and you know, and then we sing it a little bit louder and a little bit more confidently, and everybody gets in the groove. It's great. There are other songs that I can start a concert with. There's a song called You Gotta Sing, When the Spirit Says Sing. Uh, there's one uh, called Time to Sing. There's all kinds of songs I can start with, but currently I've been uh, starting with the waltz. Well, let's hear a little bit of Raffi. This is from, what, like 1977 or something like that? 76. 76, performing The More We Get Together. The More We Get Together. The more we get together, together, together. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. Because your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. You you go out and, you know, you show up somewhere and there's 500 kids who all want something of you. And I wonder how you maintain the open-heartedness and, and connection that you have. And if there's ever just a day when you just want to crawl in a hole and, like, no, I don't no, know, like not at drink all. bourbon and not, smoke not cigarettes or something. No, 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 no. Um, Jesse, it's easy to stay lighthearted in a concert. That's what we're there for. We're there for the joy, and I know that. And the joy keeps us uh, singing. It keeps us together. And uh, the concert really is a a marvelous experience for me. Um, I may, you know, have a cold one day and my throat doesn't feel as good as it should. That's the kind of thing, you know, as a professional entertainer, I struggle with from time to time. But most of the time, it's just... uh, Gee, I wonder how the music's going to flow today. You know, how am I going to play Bananaphone? Uh, am I going to go up to that higher position E? Am I going to stay down the lower? You know, there's all kinds of choices. <laughs> you know, you're singing a song, playing guitar, right? So, uh, no, I, I'm just one of those lucky entertainers who uh, has a, a wonderful job. <laughs> well, Rafi, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was, it was really great to talk to you. Well, thanks so much, Jesse. I'm just uh, tickled to uh, be able to make music after all these years, and I hope that Love Bug, the CD, is a good virus out there. (laughs) I hope it's contagious. (laughs) Thank you, and thank you for your music and the way you've touched uh, touched my life and my family's life, and, you know, I know I'm not the only one. My pleasure. Give, uh, Give my love and big hugs to your family. Rafi joined us from British Columbia. By banana phone. Every week we like to close the show with a few words from me, your host. It's the outshot. So here's this story about Van Morrison. It's 1967. Morrison had just put out Brown Eyed Girl. It was a huge hit for him and, of course, for his label, Bang Records. Bang was run by a guy named Burt Burns. This guy, Burt Burns, he was an incredible hit maker. He wrote Twist and Shout, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, I Want Candy, Peace of My Heart, like a thousand million hits. And he'd produced Brown Eyed Girl. So, understandably, this producer, Burns, wanted more like that from Morrison. But Morrison didn't want to make more like that. He was already well down the path that would lead to Astral Weeks, which is to say kind of abstract and folky and decidedly not three-minute pop radio records. 
So these two guys fought and fought and fought until Burt Burns, age 38, just had a heart attack and died. And his wife, Eileen Burns, blamed Morrison for all this. And to make matters worse, she took over the label. So the fighting kept going with the label refusing to put out the stuff Morrison wanted to put out and Morrison refusing to make the kind of stuff the label wanted. It was a stalemate, with the widow even managing to blackball Morrison from doing shows in New York. Finally, they came to this deal. Warner Brothers would buy out Morrison's contract, but as part of the agreement, he'd have to write three dozen songs for Eileen Burns' publishing company. Hard to say, honestly, if it was fair, but at the least, it was settled. But Van Morrison was mad. And you don't mess with an angry Belfast boy. So he went into the studio with an acoustic guitar, and he laid down songs one after another in one continuous stream until his entire contract was fulfilled. Three dozen songs, one recording session. And by the sound of things, zero planning. What's amazing is that you can actually listen to these songs. He starts out with this kind of song suite, And it's a song suite that is composed exclusively of what you might call alternate universe versions of Twist and Shout. There's Twist and Shake. Twist and Shake, baby. Shake and Roll. Shake and Roll. Scream and Holler. Scream and Holler, baby. And Jump and Thump, where you can almost hear him laugh. Move your hump. He sings some angry songs about the record company, like this one, The Big Royalty Check. It's about a year overdue. I guess it's coming from the big royalty check in the sky. There's three songs about a guy named George, who maybe was a rep from the publishing company. It's hard to say. Anyway, he definitely does not like George. Dumb Dumb George is about how dumb George is. Goodbye George is about George leaving. And this one is about him coming. Here come Dumb George. Here come Dumb George. Here come Dumb George. Everybody together in the chorus. Then there's this song, which is just sort of apropos of nothing. You say, France. And I'll whistle. I'll whistle, you say France. No, you say France and I'll whistle. No, no, you whistle, I'll say France. No, no, you say France and I'll whistle. And there's a song in the middle that almost feels like a challenge to listen to the rest of them. And there's a great song about breakfast. You want a Danish? No, I just ate. I just ate. Do want, like, I want some bread up front. Oh, bread up front? You want a sandwich? A few dozen of these one-minute songs, and Van Morrison was free. You know, in some ways, they're the most important records of his career. A year later, he put out his first Warner Brothers album. It was called Astral Weeks. It has a fair argument as the best album of all time. To get to all of that, though, he had to make 
one other classic, a little ditty called simply Ringworm. I can see by the look on your face that you've got ringworm. I'm very sorry, but I have to tell you that you've got ringworm. That's my own shot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian Exporello. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Matt Gibbs at Electric City Sound in British Columbia. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by the brilliant and hilarious Guy Branham. Find Pop Rocket for all the hot takes you can stomach wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 